0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm your host, David Tate, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, Walking Through the Gospel of Matthew. I won't waste your time with any extended intro shenanigans, so let's get to our main discussion. Today we're jumping into the text of the Gospel of Matthew, but here's the catch. We're only going to cover one single verse. But over the course of this video, my goal is to demonstrate to you that this single verse right here is one of the most epic ways to open up the New Testament and to open up your gospel, and also that this single verse communicates the gospel message in and of itself. But in order for us to do this, I need you to use your sanctified imagination for me. Let's jump back 2,000 years into the past, and I want you to imagine for just a few moments that you're the Apostle Matthew. You're sitting at your desk, parchment in front of you, pen in hand, and you are trying to figure out what you can do to start off this gospel with a bang. And you're trying to figure out what you can start writing down without wasting any time to communicate to your intended audience the message that you're wanting to communicate. And we've already laid the groundwork for the context that Matthew's probably going into this gospel with. This is a few years after Jesus has died and resurrected, and the general public at this time period has probably become aware of this growing faction of Jewish believers in this guy named Jesus, and they're beginning to realize that there's some steam to this whole Christianity idea. It wasn't even necessarily being called Christian at the time, it was just being called followers of the way. But people had probably heard about this idea of this guy named Jesus who came and died, and they probably heard about ideas of his resurrection, and they knew that a lot of people were beginning to follow him and so now matthew is writing this book and he wants to communicate to jewish people that jesus does have a valid claim for the throne and this is what he is going to choose to say in his opening lines of this gospel the book of the genealogy of jesus christ the son of david the son of abraham those are the only words we're going to cover in this entire video today and then in the next video we're going to actually cover the genealogy of jesus But these words right here, as boring as they might sound to us, are probably one of the most epic ways to introduce a gospel. But in order for you to understand this, I think we need to talk about a little bit of Old Testament context, because what you need to understand is that Jesus was a historical figure who was born into a historical reality, and like all historical figures born into historical realities, including you and me, Jesus was born into a story right he did not exist in isolation he did not just show up into a world that had been untainted by the stories that preceded it no jesus was born into a story and that story that he was born into is crucial both to his message and his purpose and his mission but also into understanding the gospel that matthew is trying to write to his jewish audience because this jewish audience would have been really in tune with that story into which jesus had been born and i've got a thesis for you here in order to understand why this single verse is one of the most epic ways to introduce a gospel, you need to understand one single fact about the Old Testament, or what Jewish people would call the Hebrew Bible. One fact. You ready? The Old Testament is a mystery story. It's a mystery story. The way that I heard one person talk about it is that if you're reading the Old Testament uh, and you don't go into the New Testament, just the Old Testament by itself is the equivalent of dun 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 and then it just ends, right? It's a mystery because it has all this setup, but then none of the payoff. You read the Old Testament, and you hear da 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 da, da and you're waiting for that da da, but it never comes. And that's because the Old Testament itself is, in and of itself, one big epic, long anthological mystery, where you have all these books, 39 different books, compiled together, and they set up this one story. But ultimately, it ends on a cliffhanger. And so what I want to do in this video is I want to walk us through the story of the Old Testament in order to lay the groundwork to show you how this single verse right here, the opening verse in our entire New Testament, the opening verse to Matthew's gospel, gives us the answer and the solution to the mystery laid in the Old Testament. And that's why this is one of the most epic ways to introduce the entire Bible. Uh, To introduce the gospel of Jesus. All right. So let's go back to the beginning of our story, way back in the book of Genesis. God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates this man and this woman. He places them in a garden, Adam and Eve. And very quickly, we realize that man has a hardened heart that chooses to sin. And so man rebels against God. He eats the fruit he's not supposed to eat. And then God comes down and he walks in the midst of them, and he goes and he pronounces judgments. He curses two specific things. He curses a serpent, and he curses the ground, right? So he places a curse on the serpent, which later on we'll see is the devil himself, right? And so he places a curse upon the serpent and his seed, and then he places a curse on the ground itself. And so creation itself is cursed as a result of man's choice to sin. But there's one specific thing we need to focus on here, and that's the curse that God places on The serpent. Because whenever God talks to the serpent, who is the devil who ultimately led Adam and Eve into sin, God turns to the serpent and this is what he says. This is Genesis chapter 3 verses 15 and 16. I will put enmity between you and the woman and your seed and her seed. And ultimately, as he continues talking on there, he says that you shall bruise his heel and he shall bruise your head, right? But the main word I need you to hold on to there is the word seed. Depending on your translation of the Bible, it might say offspring or descendants or something like that. But in Hebrew, this is the word zera. It just means seed. It's the same word to be talked about like if you're talking about the seed of a plant, right? But it can be used to talk about physical descendants. And so God shows up and he turns to the devil and he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and your seed, your zera, and then the woman and her seed and what we see going forward in the book of genesis is the competition between two seeds basically the competition between two family lines and we have the royal family line that is being faithful to god and then the rebellious family line that is being re- faithful to the devil and to sin and this is the story of genesis and what you see over the unfolding of the books of genesis is the competition of these storylines uh, the competition of these two seeds And they're battling out and we're trying to see who is going to win. Because God says that ultimately one is going to bruise the other's heel and one's going to bruise the other's head. And we're just waiting to see who is ultimately going to win. And we're anticipating the fact that ultimately there is going to arise a faithful seed from the line of the woman who will be faithful to God and fix the problems established in the Garden of Eden, right? And so this is ultimately the groundwork for the whole story of Scripture where God sets in motion these events that are eventually going to culminate in there being a savior who fixes what Adam and Eve first messed up. But it ties to the word Zera, right? And so as you read through the book of Genesis, Genesis has this structure. It is structured into a series of books of genealogies, because we're specifically focused on the seed. We're focused on the descendants, and so as you go through Genesis, you will read again and again in multiple sections the book of the genealogy of so-and-so, the book of the genealogy of so-and-so, the book of the genealogy of so-and-so, and And this is how the book of Genesis is structured. In Hebrew, this is the word toledot, right? And so every single section of Genesis is going from the book of the genealogy of Adam and Eve, the book of the genealogy of Noah, the book of the genealogy of abraham the book of the genealogy of esau the book of the genealogy of um, so-and-so jacob right you're going down the list and as you're going through it you're getting to see the zara being expressed and you're getting to see this ongoing conflict between family lines between genealogies all right well let's fast forward eventually we get to this guy named abraham And whenever you get to Abraham, this is where the whole idea of the seed becomes especially prominent because there's all this stuff that's laid in the groundwork in the earlier chapters of Genesis, but we've been waiting to ultimately figure out how God is going to ultimately bring about that one specific seed, that one Zera, who is going to fix everything. At the very beginning of Genesis chapter 12, we see God show up to this guy named Abraham basically out of the blue, and he says, hey, Abraham, here's the deal. I'm going to make you a great nation. I will make you great and you will be a blessing to the world. I'm going to bless those who bless you and those who do not, I am going to curse. And here's the deal. Your seed will be a blessing to the world. What God says to Abraham is that in your seed, in your Zera, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so right there in Genesis chapter 12, God makes an unconditional covenant to Abraham. He says, Abraham, regardless of what you do, eventually through your seed through your line through your descendants through your offspring i am going to bring about the chosen one that i talked about way back in genesis 3. right the word is the same zara Zera. right it's seed right god promised a seed who would ultimately crush the serpent and now god shows up to abraham and says through your seed all nations of the world will be blessed. So there is going to be a family of nations that come from Abraham, but from those family of nations is going to come one particular seed, one particular zera, through whom all the world will be blessed. All nations, not just the line of Abraham, all nations. All right. well the story progresses for a little bit and eventually abraham does turn into multiple nations and one of those particular nations the one that has the covenant with god is going to be the line of israel right abraham has isaac isaac has jacob jacob has judah and his brothers and eventually these brothers become the nation of israel israel goes down to egypt and each and in egypt they are put into captivity And eventually, after hundreds of years, they expand into this huge nation, and God sends a guy named Moses to deliver them out of Egypt, and they go and dwell in the Promised Land after many years of wandering in the wilderness as punishment for their sin. They make it to the Promised Land, but before they get to the Promised Land, Moses leads them to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God makes another covenant with Moses and with the people of Israel. And unlike the covenant he made with Abraham, this covenant is a conditional covenant. And basically what God communicates is, hey, here's the deal. If you do things that are obedient to my law, I will bless you. And through your obedience and through your blessing, all the nations will look to you and say, wow, their God must be the one true God. Because every time they obey his law, things go well. But then he says, if you disobey my law... I'm going to punish you and discipline you and I'm going to send you out to exile and things are not going to go super duper well for you. And that means that if they disobey, all the nations will look at them and say, wow, every time they disobey, things go badly for them, which once again testifies to the fact that their God is the one in charge because they got their law from God. And so how they react to God's law will dictate how their life is going, uh, which will just be a testimony to the other nations that their God, the God Yahweh, is the one true God of all things. And so they go dwell in the land. Moses doesn't get to go in with them, but eventually they do land in the land, the promised land, the land of Israel, and they establish a government there. And there's this whole time period of the judges, which is just not a great time period for them. But through all of that, eventually they establish a monarchy. And there's one king who's not the best of dudes. His name is Saul. And he kind of does his own thing, and it's not very great. But then comes a second king, and this gets us to a guy named David, right? Now, David is a man after God's own heart. He is the epitome of what it means to be a godly Israelite. He's by no means a perfect person. He is a flawed individual who does a a bunch of really messed up stuff. But from this point forward in Israelite history, everybody's going to look back at David in an even more excellent way than they looked at Abraham, right? Abraham was the friend of God, but David is the man after God's own heart. He is God's king. He is God's anointed one. In Hebrew, the word anointed one is Mashiach, right? He is God's Mashiach, which we would translate as Messiah. And so David is the king, and because he's such a great king who has a heart after God, God makes another covenant with David and this covenant isn't like the covenant he made with Israel because that was a conditional covenant, right? You do this, I do this. You do this, I do this. This covenant isn't like that. This covenant is like the covenant he made with Abraham, an unconditional covenant, right? Because God made that covenant with Abraham and he says, regardless of what you do, through your seed, I will bless the world and we've still been waiting this whole time for the Zara of Abraham to show up. Where is the seed of Abraham? Where is the one through whom all nations will be blessed? And you might even think that David is going to be that king, but we realize that David's not that king, right? He is not the Zara of Abraham. He is he is a Zara of Abraham. He is one of the seeds of Abraham, and the nations are being blessed by David. But the serpent isn't getting crushed by David because David is still sinful like everybody else. And so we realize that David does not fit the full criteria of what this chosen seed needs to be, because this needs to be somebody who can ultimately crush the serpent. But still, David is a really good guy. And so God makes another covenant to David, one very like the one he made to Abraham. And what God says to David is this, hey, since you're such an amazing king, Here's the deal I'm going to make with you. You will have a king on the throne forever. Just as you are an anointed one, a Mashiach, there will arise from you a line of anointed ones, Mashiachs, and eventually it will culminate in this one ultimate anointed one, the Mashiach, HaMashiach, the Messiah. And that guy will reign on the throne of Jerusalem forever and ever and ever and not only over the throne of Jerusalem, but over all the nations. And so God makes this unconditional promise to David that in time, from his chosen line, from his royal line, there will come this ultimate king who will rule over the whole world. Not just Israel, but the whole world, and this is an unconditional covenant. And so we have multiple covenants bouncing around here. One specific one is the conditional covenant towards the people of Israel in general, but then there's the two broader unconditional covenants to Abraham and David. There's going to be this seed that comes from Abraham, who, through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. And then further along the line, there's going to be this king, this anointed one, this Mashiach from David, who will eventually rule over the entire world and he's going to rule over the world forever. This is the promise that we get from Abraham and from David, and this is the storyline of the Old Testament. But then, here's the sad thing. As a result of David's sin, the back half of his life Or the back half of his reign is really miserable and things start going really downhill for him and yes he gets things right before god but there's still going to be consequences for his actions and his son solomon becomes a great king but solomon's even more sinful than his father and so solomon even ends up turning away from god and so as we see the generations progress we actually see the house of david totally fall apart and it's absolutely heartbreaking what we see happen because God made this unconditional promise to David that he would have a king to sit on the throne forever but as the generations pass we see that the house of David is collapsing and by the time you get to the third generation from David when you get to David's grandson Rehoboam The nation actually splits in two, and you actually have the northern kingdom retaining the name Israel, and they go do their own thing, and they establish their own monarchy. And then the southern kingdom, they become known as Judah because that was the prominent tribe there, and they do their own thing as well, and the line of David still reigns in Judah. But then, as the years progress, you see that people are becoming more and more sinful, and it becomes a bigger challenge to see how is God going to fulfill his covenants. Where is the Zerah of Abraham? who will ultimately deliver the people from their sins and bless all the nations? Where is the Mashiach from David who will reign in righteousness and who will do all these glorious things that God promised? And if you're a Jewish person during this time period, you might be tempted to doubt God's promises, but here's what God does. He starts sending prophets and these prophets rebuke the people for their sinfulness to try to get them back on the right track. But in addition to rebuking the people for their sinfulness, The prophets start giving promises and as these promises begin to unfold, we get the idea that God is going to fulfill his promises. He is going to do what he said and we actually getting it fleshed out. We actually see it getting fleshed out more and more. We see that God promises. Yes, that Mashiach figure will come. Yes, that Zerah will come. And in fact, he tells you exactly how it's going to happen. The prophet Isaiah says that a shoot shall arise from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, and so Isaiah says that it's going to look like the tree of David is cut down to its roots, and it's going to look like the house is dead, and it's going to look like there is no king in Israel, but then a tiny little shoot is going to pop up, and from that shoot will come a brand new tree that will be the eternal kingdom of God, and that's going to be the Messiah and then you see all these other promises where it says the messiah will be born in bethlehem you get the idea that the messiah is going to ride into jerusalem on a donkey and you get all these different promises that even as the nation is collapsing and even as the house of david seems to be dying off god is making promise after promise after promise that he will fulfill these unconditional covenants that he has made to abraham and to david even if it doesn't appear like he will And sure enough, things get so bad and things get so sinful in the land of Israel that eventually, in fulfillment of his covenant to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, God sends them into exile. He says, you have not been obeying my law. You have not been faithful to me. And so he sends them into exile. And then eventually, because they repent, he brings them back from exile. But here's the issue. There is no king sitting on the throne. It seems in many ways as if the kingdom of God has died. The people of israel dwell in the land of israel there's no king on the throne has god failed his covenant to abraham has he failed his covenant to david because where is the king where is hamashiach where is the one who will rule forever and so as you see the old testament beginning to progress you have god giving these promises and he's getting hyper specific on how he's gonna fulfill them and he says this is what the messiah is going to do but by the time the old testament comes to a close the Zerah of Abraham has failed to show up. The Mashiach of David has failed to show up. We have seen all the genealogies, Toledot after Toledot after Toledot after Toledot. All the different genealogies have passed through. Yet where were the fulfillments of God's promises? And the Old Testament ends, and we have bum, da bum bum. And it fizzles out. There's no bum bum. Right? We don't get the solution. It's one big mystery. And you go through the whole thing and you're like, wait a second. God made all these promises, but he didn't fulfill them. That's a big problem. And so what we see over the course of the next few hundred years during those periods of silence is that the people of Israel began diving deep into the text of these scriptures and they begin wrestling through them and they try to make sense of how God can be true to his promises in light of the conditions that they're currently living in and so they start developing these ideas of what the Messiah is going to look like and who the Messiah is going to be because they begin to have this central focus on the Messiah because that is the central promise of the whole scriptures right? God says that there will be a seed to crush the serpent. God says that there will be a seed who will bless all the nations through Abraham. God says that there will be this king who comes from David who will reign over the whole world. Where is that seed? Where is that king? This is what the people are wrestling through over the course of the hundreds of years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is what they're wrestling through. This is what they're trying to understand. And eventually the Greeks come in, right? And the Romans come in. And eventually you have this mass Hellenization where people stop speaking as much Hebrew and they start speaking Greek. And the terms start taking on Greek terminology, right? And so the word Hamashiach in Hebrew has its Greek form. And the Greek form is Christos right the Christ and so they're asking where is the Messiah, but now they're asking where is the Christ? It means the same thing they're waiting for the Christ to show up They need the Christ to show up. They are longing for the Christ to show up They are longing for that final genealogy that final toledot to show up where the son of Abraham Where the son of David shows up and he will be the one who reigns forever Then we arrive Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now do you see why this single verse is like a mic drop moment for Matthew? Right here, in this very first verse of his gospel, Matthew has solved the riddle or he claims to Right? what he's going to do over the course of the next four chapters is he's going to defend this claim right here. But what he's asserting right here is that he has the answer to the mystery, that he has the solution to the mystery that was laid in the Hebrew scriptures, right? The Old Testament says bum, bada bum, bum, and Matthew says bum, bum. Right here is the answer. Jesus according to Matthew is the answer. And interestingly, right, the New Testament was written in Greek, but uh, there are some early accounts. We talked about this in the introductory videos uh, to the series. There are some early accounts that suggest that Matthew was originally written in Hebrew. And I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that Matthew was probably originally written in Greek, but I think that there is a very Hebraic form to how he writes Greek. But what I have right here is I actually have a Hebrew New Testament. Uh, I actually bought this while I was over in Israel. Uh, and it is a New Testament that has been translated from Greek into Hebrew. And what I wanted to do right here is read to you the very first verse of the Gospel of Matthew in Hebrew. Because if you've been tracking with the words that I've been saying throughout this, this will sound very familiar. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 in Hebrew Sefer Toledot Yeshua HaMashiach Ben David Ben Abraham. Sefer. The book. Toledot. Genealogy. Yeshua. Jesus. Hamashiach. The Messiah. Ben David. Son of David. Ben Abraham. Son of Abraham. Whenever they translated this into Hebrew, the people translating it understood exactly what Matthew was going for. Because when they translated it, they translated that first phrase as Toledot. The book of the genealogy. Matthew is going way back to the book of Genesis, and the reason why the book of Genesis is structured into genealogies is because God asserts that there is going to be a seed who is ultimately going to triumph over the seed of the serpent, right? There is going to be this faithful seed who ultimately comes to crush the serpent, and therefore the whole book of Genesis is a series of genealogies as we are looking at these competing family lines. Matthew calls back to the book of genealogy that same phrase, toledot, in Hebrew, in Greek it's something different, but... These people right here, when they translated it, they understood what Matthew was doing. Sefer Toledot, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In Greek, this is Christos. In Hebrew, they translated it as Hamashiach. This is the Messiah. Oftentimes, we speak of Christ as if it's the last name of Jesus. That's not what Matthew's doing here. Christ is not a last name, Christ is a title. And this is the very thing that everybody has been waiting on for hundreds of years. They have been yearning for the Messiah to show up. This is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made to David. He said, I will bring forth an anointed one from you, and he will rule over all things forever. That's what Matthew's asserting here. The book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, of Jesus the Christ, of Jesus the Anointed One. But in order for him to be the Messiah, in order for him to be the Christ, in order for him to be the Anointed One, in order for him to be the seed that will cross the serpent, he has to meet the right criteria and he has to have the right family line. And that's exactly what we see here. He is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. He is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, He is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. He is the king who will reign over Israel and all the nations forever and ever. He is the seed of Abraham through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. That is what Matthew is asserting here. And if you are a Jewish person in the first century who has been yearning for the Messiah to show up, this is going to capture your attention. Nowadays, we have all sorts of books and movies, and the way that they start off their story is supposed to grab our attention to inspire us to read the rest of it. That's exactly what Matthew is doing right here with this very first verse of his gospel. He is saying, hey guys, pay attention, because what I'm about to lay down before you is a defense of the fact that this guy named Jesus is the one we've been waiting for, not for 10 years, not for 20 years, not for 30 years, not for 40 years, not for 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, not for 200 years, not for 300 years. This is the guy that we've been waiting for since the beginning of time. This is the guy that we have been waiting for since Adam and Eve first plucked that fruit from that tree. This is the guy that we've been waiting for ever since God appeared to Abraham and said, hey, go to this land that I show you. This is the guy that we've been waiting for ever since God told David that he would build a house for him and it would be an eternal dynasty. This is the guy, this Jesus, he is the one. He is the fulfillment. This is where the books of the genealogies can come to an end because they have found their culmination in this one guy who will ultimately crush the serpent who will ultimately do all the things we've been waiting for that is matthew's assertion and what we're going to see over the course of this book is that matthew is actually going to take the idea and concept of messiah and he's going to flesh it out in a way that is very different than how the jews typically viewed the messiah at that time period matthew's going to totally just take that and flip it on its head and that's really a big aspect of his gospel because over the course of those hundreds of years the people of Israel had developed a bunch of different ideas of what the Messiah would look like. But now, they hear these speculations about this guy named Jesus who didn't really seem to be the type of Messiah they figured he would be. This guy was like a teacher who did a bunch of really cool stuff, but then he ultimately died, and then some people say he came back to life. But where's his kingdom? Why is he not established on the throne right now? People would have various questions about this Jesus figure and how he could actually have a valid claim to the Messianic throne if he didn't do the things that the Messiah was supposed to do, right? Because they have a lot of lingering questions about this. If he is the king, where is he right now? Where is his kingdom? What do we do in response to this? How do we justify this? How could we have been so wrong? These are all questions that Matthew is going to answer in the verses and chapters to come over the course of this book. But this right here is the hook, Right? Nowadays, we have all these different ways of hooking people into our stories. If you're a Jew in the first century and you're reading this, you're immediately captivated and you're saying, oh my, I have been studying the scriptures my entire life and I have been waiting to read these words right here. They have been waiting to hear about this chosen one, who had finally arrived and this is the thing that they have been longing for this is the thing that they would wake up each morning praying for a lot of the times the reason they would follow the law so adamantly is because they were hoping that if they could just follow the law enough god would bless them by sending them the messiah they have been yearning for the messiah day after day after day and now matthew says hey bum bum ba, bum bum he says he's here i know who he is His name is Jesus. Allow me to tell you his story so that you can come to a conclusion on your own. That is the thesis statement for Matthew's whole gospel here. And it is one of the most epic introductions to a book of the Bible that I could ever imagine. And so often we just glaze over it and move on because it's like, oh, genealogy. And we just get bored and we just blast through it because it bores us. But you have to understand it in its context. And you have to realize that Jesus was not born in isolation. He was born into a story. And if you understand that story, you understand exactly what Matthew is asserting right here, because there is some weight to these names. He could have said Jesus, the son of Joseph, the son of Jeconiah or something. He could have said that that doesn't carry the same weight. Instead, he says, son of David, son of Abraham, the two people whom God made unconditional covenants about Two, the two people who God made unconditional covenants to concerning the fate of all humanity. This is who Jesus is, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That being said, that's all I've got for y'all today. Once again, thank y'all so much for listening in, and I just want to remind you that if you want more biblical content like this, I have plenty more on the Now Let's Be Honest YouTube channel. Also, if you don't mind, leaving an honest rating and review for this podcast would be a super huge help for helping spread the word. Until next time, I've been David Tate, this has been Now Let's Be Honest, and I look forward to moving further along in our study next week. Be sure to keep a smile on your face and don't let anybody steal your joy. Maranatha.